Hello, Fight Fans. Welcome to the Neutral Corner, episode 105. I am Michael Montero for Boxing Monthly Magazine and BoxingMonthly.com. Can you believe it's almost the end of 2017, man? This has been an, an amazing year. And just last week, we had some great fights. We had probably the upset of the year in 2017. We had a couple more retirements in a year where we've seen a lot of retirements of great fighters. Just so much has happened this year, and it's not over. We still have some more to look forward to. So let's jump into some news and notes. So this weekend, I did another one of my famous polls, and I asked you guys, is Vasil Lomachenko the new pound-for-pound -pound king of the sport after dominating Rigondo and making him quit? 445 of you have voted so far, and 48% of you said Lomachenko is indeed the pound-for-pound -pound number one. 19% of you said it's Terrence Crawford. 30% of you said it's Gennady Golovkin. And 3% of you said somebody else. I would be curious who uh, that 3%, who you guys feel it is. So myself, I'm not going to tell you guys just yet who I feel is the pound-for-pound pound number one fighter in the sport. I will be doing a year-end pound-for-pound list. I'm going to be doing a lot of year-end videos, so look out for that stuff. Um, I'm going to wait, though, to the last couple weeks of the year once the schedule finally dies down a bit after this last big card of the year that I'll be previewing in this episode between Billy Joe Saunders and David Lemieux. So uh, before we get to that, though, some news and notes. Hall of Fame class has been named for the year. Eric Morales, Vitaly Klitschko, and Winky Wright. All three of these guys get in on their first year of eligibility. Not sure if I've talked about this on the show before or not, but the way the International Boxing Hall of Fame works is it is uh, you join the ballot five years after your last fight. So you can say you're retired right now and you can come back and fight next year, well, it's gonna be five years after next year. So all three of these guys, their last fight was in 2012, and all three of them, it was their first year of eligibility. Obviously, this is 2017, five years from 2012. And Boxing Monthly, we posted uh, just a quick blog. We, call, we have a feature that we call the big question that we do on the website and we do it in the magazine where we ask all the writers to give their opinions. And, and we all kind of gave our answers weeks ago as far as who we thought should get in this year. I felt the one obvious choice on this ballot was Eric Morales. Eric Morales is one of the top 10 best fighters ever out of Mexico. And I think uh, you can make the case for an all-time great level fighter in those lower weight classes and he had some amazing rivalries. You, you look at the fights he had with Pacquiao, with Barrera. Uh, he fought Marquez, or he didn't fight Marquez, right? Yeah, I think that was the only guy he didn't fight. But there were rivalries there, real rivalries. And he was always exciting to watch, and he accomplished a lot. After that, though, I wasn't so sure. I mean, you'd think Vitaly Klitschko, you'd think Winky Wright, but there are some other guys that have been on the ballot for a while. Donald Curry, how is he not in yet? He would have had my vote this year over Klitschko and Wright. Leo Gamez, Leo Gamez, I, I thought he should have got in over those two, but borderline. Meldrick Taylor, Gilberto Roman, Julian Jackson, plenty of other names. So it gets muddy, right? And you don't always have three fighters get in every year. You don't always have three obvious choices. The one obvious choice, again, that was Morales. After that, though, it's up to debate. And there are people out there who felt that guys like Curry, even maybe Taylor, should have got in before Vitaly Klitschko and, and Rinky Wright got in during their first year of eligibility. But that's who got in this year. Uh, one other little news thing I saw with uh, Zab Judah is that he is working as a nursing assistant right now, and he's helping train and teach uh, students that are going through their training, I guess, to become uh, nursing assistants as well. He's doing all this while he's still training as a pro fighter. Now, he, I don't know if he's going to carry on fighting, and he's not. I wouldn't take him serious as a pro fighter at this point anyway. But I saw people, uh, some of you guys on Twitter bashing him, because I saw there was pictures of him in his scrubs. And traditionally, when you think scrubs, you think female, because you think nurses, and most nurses are female. 
Uh, look, my, my sister and my brother both work in the medical field and they both wear scrubs. So I'm used to seeing guys wear scrubs just as much as girls. It doesn't look silly to me. But for some of you out there seeing Zab Judah wearing scrubs, maybe that picture was just jarring to you and a lot of you were dissing him. Look, this was the first week Riddick Bowe put out a GoFundMe because he's so broke. I saw that on social media as well. So some of you bashing Zab Judah for getting a real job and staying busy, you know, I'm, I'm, he's done pretty well with his money anyway, but he's also getting a job to secure his future. A fighter doing the smart thing, you guys want to, some of you want to make fun of this guy. At the same time, the former heavyweight champion of the world, a guy who made millions upon millions of dollars, is now so broke and destitute that he's starting a GoFundMe page to raise money. And I think he's trying to raise like $100,000 or something, he's saying, because he's so broke and so many people took him to the cleaners. So guys, you can't have it both ways. I support any fighter getting any type of education, working any kind of job. I don't care what it is. Why make fun of that? I don't get it, guys. That's it for news and notes right now. Not a whole lot going on. It's toward the end of the year. There's a lot of things we're waiting on to see, like when we're talking about Joshua and Parker fighting, the Canelo-Golovkin rematch. That stuff is still being hashed out. So let's get into the review of what happened last week. There was a ton of action all over the world. Last Friday, December 8th in Hialeah, Florida, it was a PBC on Fox Sports 1 card, and there was an upset special as the veteran Jean Pascal scores a sixth-round TKO over Egyptian-American Ahmed Albiali. The corner stopped the fight. Pascal had him kind of on the ropes and was teeing off on him. He had landed some hard shots, but there were no real concussive blows or knockdowns or anything like that. Uh, it was the first loss in the career of Albiali, who really, to me, looked more suspect than prospect. Uh, kind of fell in love with his power and thought he could just go in there and blast Pascal out of there. He lives in that area. I think he lives in Miami now, so he lives in the, the area where this fight was, and he had some hometown fans there. Maybe he felt the pressure from that. I don't know. What I saw was just a complete lack of experience. Pascal has been in wars. He's been in uh, tough fights with great elite level, pound for pound level opposition. Guys who bring a wealth of experience. So he saw everything that was coming at him in this fight and he was able to turn back the clock and get an impressive uh, come from behind victory because he, he lost the early rounds and a stoppage victory at that. So great win for him. He announced immediately after the fight that he is retiring. So if he sticks to that, and he does stay retired, carved out a nice career for himself, was the lineal light heavyweight champion for a while, had some good quality wins under his belt. When he stepped up and fought the absolute elite level fighters in their prime, he lost. And, um, you know, that's just, there's nothing wrong with that. He was one of those guys that made for some interesting fights in a light heavyweight division that was kind of weak in this last era. So good career for him, good luck in retirement. Also on this card, Luis Ortiz scores a second round KO over a journeyman who didn't belong in the ring with him. Immediately talked trash to Deontay Wilder, who was doing some guest commentary on the PBC card, was sitting there ringside, and Wilder started drawing back and forth with him. He eventually got up in the ring, and they had this kind of awkward uh, WWE type thing where the idea was good as far as promoting a fight between the two of them. It just wasn't handled well by the people PBC has working as commentators who kind of just don't know what they're doing and don't know how to handle themselves in an improv situation like that, even though it was half kind of planned, but kind of improv. You got to have people that know how to handle that situation and get more out of the fighters and make it more fluid and less awkward. I thought that that was a wasted opportunity. Either way, it looks like Ortiz and Wilder are probably going to fight next year because the WBC has uh, cleared Ortiz to fight, obviously fought here. We've all talked about the failed drug test through VADA, through the clean boxing program a few months back when he was supposed to fight Deontay Wilder. He claims he was taking blood pressure medication. And, you know, we've talked a lot about this. I tweeted about it 
immediately while this fight was happening that, you know, how, how is this fight happening so soon after a failed test? The WBC uh, is just disgusting, you know, stuff like that. And it got a lot of response. A lot of you feel the same way, but I shouldn't have, I should backtrack a little bit and say this much. If, I guess the WBC put out a press release saying, look, there is a legitimate doctor's prescription for blood pressure medication. His team confirms that he needs blood pressure meds. We're going to monitor this guy. He took extra testing to show that he's clean, blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. First of all, Ortiz and his team still failed because they didn't disclose that they were taking blood pressure medication. Now, apparently people on Ortiz's own team weren't aware of it. So Ortiz didn't even make members of his own team aware of it. So it goes down to him. He, he's ultimately responsible for the fight with Wilder falling through and for the bad look and for people questioning him and suspecting him from here on out because of it. That falls on him. That's his fault. But let's just assume, let's just say for the sake of argument that Luis Ortiz has never taken a performance enhancing drug in his life. And that the first test he failed years back and this test here, the second one uh, this year, uh, were just uh, circumstance, right? It, it was contamination, not disclosing the blood pressure medication he was taking, et cetera, et cetera. If you are Team Ortiz and you are his handlers, why would you not put out a statement on Twitter, on social media? If you're the PBC and you're representing this dude and you're going to have him fighting one of your marquee fighters, probably one of your most marquee fighters in Deontay Wilder, why would you not do a two-minute vignette with Luis Ortiz in his own words explaining what happened, his own team explaining what happened, and have Ray Flores, who was calling the fights, give a 30-second quick soundbite talking about the WBC, their ruling, how Luis Ortiz is fighting so soon after a failed drug test. Have some freaking transparency with the fans and the media, for that matter, to explain what's going on to help alleviate some of the suspicion. It's not that hard. It would have required just an hour or so of production putting together that vignette and let the man give his story, explain his side. Just the lack of transparency... The lack of vision to, to even see something like that from the PBC, from Luis Ortiz's people, from him himself. I, I would, if I was innocent, if all I did was just forget to disclose my blood pressure medication, I would want to tell my story. I would want to have two minutes on a broadcast. The fight lasted two freaking minutes. What's another two minutes to explain what happened? For them to not do this, for them to fail... And yet another opportunity to clear the air about something, it just, it boggles my freaking mind. I can't understand it. The lack of vision, the failure of just opportunity after opportunity with these people, I don't get it. I don't understand what they're doing over there. But enough of that. So Luis Ortiz wins. He stays busy. He knocks out a pizza boy or something, a very, very big pizza boy. And now he's going to fight Wilder next year. I still think Luis Ortiz is a tad overrated. I still think he's going to get knocked the hell out when he fights Deontay Wilder. I'm saying it now. Okay, Saturday, December 9th. Lots of action around the world. Let's start at the Copper Box Arena in London. Lee Selby scores a unanimous decision over Eduardo Ramirez, who actually missed weight for this fight by over two pounds. So the title was not on the line for him. But... It doesn't matter anyway. Selby clearly wins the fight, defends his IBF featherweight title for the fourth time. Then the upset of the year. I can't think of a bigger upset this year. Caleb Truax wins a majority decision over James DeGale. It should have been a unanimous decision. One of these judges should be suspended. And wins the IBF super middleweight title off of DeGale. Uh, Truax was a major betting underdog. This has got to be the upset of the year. Guys, if there's one I'm forgetting that's bigger than this, remind me. Keep me honest. But I can't think of one bigger this year. Scores were 116-112 from an American judge, 115-112 from a Canadian judge, and UK judge Dave Paris somehow scored this a draw. 
Absolutely pathetic, disgusting scorecard. And Dave Parrish should be suspended immediately by the, uh, the UK boxing authorities. They should suspend this guy immediately. He shouldn't judge another championship fight for a year. He shouldn't judge any fight period for at least three to six months. Horrible scorecard. Nobody in their right mind would have thought that this was a draw. Truax had been KO'd in the first round by Anthony Durrell last year. He was TKO'd by Daniel Jacobs the year before that in 2015. This guy was a major underdog, yet he comes in here and just outboxes and outworks DeGale, who I feel was always overrated. Always overrated. He lost to George Groves in 2011, and that was the... Not the new and improved George Groves we're seeing now. That was the old George Groves. Lost to him in 2011. Squeaked by Andre Durrell in 2015. It was a close fight. Durrell probably won seven of the 12 rounds, but he dropped Durrell a couple times in that fight, and that was the difference. And I felt he lost to Badu Jack in January. I thought he lost that fight. I thought Badu Jack closed the show and won that fight. So for DeGale, I don't know where he goes from here. I don't even see him as a, as a player at super middleweight right now because you have a tournament going on that's going to crown a new star. You have other prospects coming up in, um, that are being managed by different promoters, different advisors that aren't part of the stable that uh, represents DeGale. So I, I, he's kind of the odd man out right now. And, you know, maybe it's because he sat in his butt for an entire year after having that draw with Badu Jack. I don't know what it was. But this is an absolutely horrible, wretched performance by him. And I don't know where he goes from here. Now, in Las Vegas at Mandalay Bay, we had a bunch of fights. On the undercard, uh, this was an HBO triple header, but on the undercard, and I think this was on HBO Latino they showed this fight, or maybe it was streamed on HBO social media, Rene Alvarado scored a split decision win over Dennis Shafikov. Also, but going to the actual televised card, also on this card, Francisco Vargas scores a technical decision over Stephen Smith, who suffered a gruesome injury. The scores at the time of the stoppage were 89-82 and 88-83 twice. So Vargas clearly won this fight. Uh, Smith has now lost three of his last five. He's a journey, uh, perennial contender level guy. Tough guy who goes rounds. Lee Selby is the only guy who's ever stopped him. So he loses when he steps up in class, but he goes rounds. He's a tough guy that goes rounds. This was a nice rebound win for Vargas after that tough loss to Miguel Burchelt in January. So for Smith, his left ear was damaged. It was split at the top, just split in half at the top of the ear. You guys, I'm sure, have all seen the gifts and everything on, on Instagram and Twitter. I think it was from a headbutt. Just one of those freak injuries, man, that, um, you know, better that happened to your ear than on your eye, where that's just going to get cut over and over and over in every fight that you have from here on out. For Smith, yeah, it's a nasty injury, but you could get that cleaned up and it's not going to affect his future in, in future fights. Also on this card, Kenichi Ogawa scores an upset win, a split decision win over Tevin Farmer in a fight that many people feel was a robbery. He wins the vacant IBF 130-pound title that Gervonta Davis uh, lost on the scale earlier this year. So watching this fight the first time, I thought this was a robbery at first. I thought that Farmer clearly won this fight. I thought that, you know, at least eight rounds and he controlled the action. But in retrospect, I look back and it was a pretty close fight. It actually was a pretty close fight. I thought that Ogawa actually started strong and had some moments at times in some of the later rounds that uh, some of the judges may have felt he was landing the harder, more significant punches. However, close fight, but Tarver still won the damn fight. I think that Tarver, or, I'm sorry, Farmer, <laughs> Tevin Farmer, I was putting the first and last name together. Tevin Farmer clearly won this fight. Now, all that being said, the HBO commentary, particularly Max Kellerman, was just insane during this fight. They were comparing this guy to some of the all-time great defensive slick type fighters. You guys know the names. I don't even have to repeat them because it's so asinine. 
to, to put Farmer in the same stratosphere as some of those guys is just, it's, it's egregious. It's too much. It's hyperbole. HBO, sometimes they're coming off to me lately a little desperate promoting some of these guys a little too much. I know when Top Rank left, that's stable and took it to ESPN. It left a huge void at HBO and they're trying to fill that void and promote fighters. And every single American fighter that they can promote and boost up, they're going to do that. And Farmer does have a good story. I get it. But this guy, let's not put him up there with the all-time greats just yet, HBO commentary crew. Okay? He barely beat... This Japanese fighter. And what I got what I tell you guys last week on the neutral corner, I said these Japanese dudes come over and they're tough as hell. This was going all 12, and this guy was gonna give Farmer a tough, tough fight. I thought Farmer was gonna clearly win, though. The fight was closer than I thought it would be. And maybe, maybe I had a little bit of bias because I thought Farmer was gonna win so wide when I watched it the first time. That's why I saw a robbery. But watching it again and really trying to be as objective as I could, I could see how somebody could give Ogawa five rounds. I could see that. I still don't think he won the fight. I still think Farmer did. But the HBO commentary was a little ridiculous, to put it mildly. They need to tone it down with some of that stuff. Now, in the main event, Miguel Roman scores a ninth-round TKO over Orlando Salido, drops him in the fourth, eighth, and ninth. Really, Salido basically just took a knee in the ninth and just was, was done. Uh, he didn't quit. He had the fight beat out of him. He literally had nothing else. He was done. This is very, very different than another quit job that we saw the same night, which I'll talk about in a second. So Orlando Salido retires after this fight. Hard fought career, hard scrabble career. Uh, gave us some great moments, some fights of the year, some rounds of the year. Made it a rough night out for anybody he was in there with when he was on his A-game. I didn't love some of his tactics. He had failed drug tests in the past. He had cheated guys on weight. He could be a bully in there and fight very, very dirty. I don't appreciate all those things, but it's all part of kind of what he had to do to be his absolute best and be competitive because he wasn't a very athletic guy not the most skilled guy. I do think he had underrated craft as an inside fighter. And part of being an inside fighter, guys, honestly, at the elite level, if you look at all the all-time greats, the best inside fighters had a little dirtiness in them. Fighting on the inside is dirty and messy. It's not as pretty as fighting on the outside or at mid-range. So part of fighting on the inside is kind of using your head, getting a little low with the shots, using the elbows, using the forearms, using the shoulder, right? Uh, you could even push guys out with your knee. You know, my coach uh, <laughs> works on that move with me all the time, pushing guys out with your knee to get some space and, and getting a shot in there. Um, there's little things, there's subtle things that some guys learn how to do on the inside that helps them bridge the gap against more athletic fighters. And that's what Salido had to do. All things being considered, I think he falls short of the Hall of Fame. I wouldn't put him there, although he gave us some Hall of Fame moments. And I can hear some of you out there, well, Gotti got in. I hate the damn excuse that people... Arturo Gotti has become this measuring stick for the Hall of Fame for people. Sorry, but Orlando Salido isn't on the same level as Arturo Gotti in terms of moments. Gave us some great moments, but not quite Arturo Gotti moments. That being said, was probably the Arturo Gotti of this generation, right? So um, maybe he gets in the Hall of Fame one day, one year, I should say, on a very, very weak year. But I, at this point, I probably wouldn't vote for him. He's just, he's just falls short of that level for me. Still, fantastic career and definitely a fan favorite, deservingly so. In Madison Square Garden in New York City on ESPN, it was another top-ranked card, and it was their best head-to-head -head matchup so far in their deal with ESPN. Now, on the undercard, undefeated Puerto Rican 130-pound prospect Christopher Diaz improved to 22-0 with 14 knockouts. He's really turning into the premier Puerto Rican prospect people are looking at, turning from a prospect into a contender now. Remember, it was Felix Berdejo, but he's kind of fallen off. He's kind of just out there floating in space. 
And this guy, Christopher Diaz, is kind of taking over that mantle right now. So let's keep an eye on him. Michael Conlon and Shakur Stevenson also won to stay undefeated. Shakur Stevenson with the barking when he punches. A lot of people are joking about it and laughing about it, and, and I am too. I think it's, it's really annoying to watch. It makes for very bad television. A couple of things I notice about barkers that punch. I just call them barkers. I don't know what other name uh, to get to. We could call them screamers, yellers, yelpers. I don't know. Barkers. I haven't known one barker who is a power puncher. Can you name one barker who is a, just a, a concussive power puncher? Because I sure can't. They all seem to be slappers. And I don't know if it's something that's an insecurity they have or if they feel they have to add a uh, 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 after every punch to make the point that they're throwing a punch if they think the judges see it more. But I can't think of one elite level fighter in the game today that barks when they punch. Talk about your Terrence Crawfords, your Vasily Lomachenkos, your Gennady Golovkins, your Canelo Alvarez, Anthony Joshua. These guys don't bark when they punch. They don't need to freaking bark when they punch. The punch does the barking for them. And I don't know why, and it, it seems to be big among American fighters especially in certain parts of the country, in certain gyms, a certain, certain heritage. It's, it's taught with certain fighters. I don't understand it. It does nothing to help you. It makes for bad television. It annoys everybody watching it. The judges don't notice you landing punches any more significantly. And more than any of that, your opponent can time it. So why would you indicate that you're going to throw a shot by barking? Any guy I've ever sparred that barks, I stop watching his shoulders for feints. I stop watching his feet. I stop watching his hips, any of that. I just look at his freaking mouth. When I see his lips start to move, I throw a jab out. And I, I use my right hand to catch his and I throw a jab out. Because I know a jab's coming at me. Right when he's about to go, it just sounds like a mongoloid masturbating. I don't get it. So for Shakur Stevenson, he needs to lock that up because it's not going to help him. It's going to hurt him as he moves up in class. Now, Michael Conlon, he's got to clean up a lot of stuff too because he just looks downright sloppy. He doesn't look any better than he looked in his professional debut, which I was ringside for in New York. He needs to clean some stuff up too because he's a knockout waiting to happen if he doesn't improve that guard and some of the distance and angles with which he punches with. So uh, both of those guys are a work in progress, and we get it. The prospects, they're just starting out their career. So in the main event, Vasil Lomachenko, the one they call High Tech, scores a sixth-round retirement win over Guillermo Rigondeau or Rigondo. And I know some of you gave me some crap on my rant video that I posted. If you haven't seen that yet, please watch it. My rant video on that fight because I said Rigondo after making a, a, just a big stink about people saying Lomenchenko and adding an N to his name where there isn't an N. And some of you are saying it's Rigondeau, it's Rigondeau. Well, look, guys. The name looks French because it has an X at the end. I'm from Detroit, right next to Canada. I know French pronunciation. It looks like Rigondo. Plus, the guy came out years ago saying it's Rigondo. Just recently, did he want people to start saying Rigondeau? Whatever. Either way, it doesn't matter because he quit and we don't, ever, we don't want to see him again. So, Lomachenko, I said last week, I'm in the preview portion on last week's episode of TNC, that this fight would be competitive early, but that Rigo is going to, or I'm sorry, Lomo is going to take over in the middle rounds and control the fight late, and that this wasn't going to be a close fight, that he was going to win decisively. I told you guys it was going to be about nine rounds to three. Well, the fight was even more one-sided than I thought. Turns out, I gave Rigodio too much credit, so did most of you, because a lot of you that said that you were going to teach me a lesson and you were going to, you know, school me that left predictions that Rigondeau was going to win and not just win, but, but win by knockout. You guys got real quiet. Now, some of you need to own up to it. Let's see if you comment on this episode and eat your humble pie. But this fight wasn't even competitive after the second round. 
First round was a feel-out round. Second round, Lomachenko took control. Rounds three through six, he dominated. He outclassed Regan Diao. He actually embarrassed him and toyed with him. Did whatever he wanted to do. Rigo couldn't do anything. He had no answers. He tried holding. He tried hitting low. He tried any tactic he could to get a little bit of space, to get a little bit of a breather. Nothing worked. He had no answers. So in the end, he quit. Now, he claimed that there was a hand injury. And some people have said that apparently a doctor inspected it and said that there was a, a knuckle broken in two places or two knuckles broken, something like that, on the left hand, on the top of the hand. We are yet to see any photos. We're yet to see a doctor's note. We're yet, yet to get a statement from Regando's promoters, his handlers, from the guy himself. And this is a guy who's been very, very active on Twitter. In fact, he was calling out Lomachenko for a while now. And making all kinds of silly memes and all this, all of a sudden has disappeared. So if you have this massive hand injury to where you can't continue a fight, meanwhile, this is the biggest fight of your career, the highest profile fight of your career, the biggest opportunity of your boxing life, amateur or pro. And this injury is severe enough that you have to quit on your stool, but you don't tweet a photo of it. Remember all the memes he was posting? All the silly memes dissing Lomachenko and saying, you know, I'm not going to pull a Nicholas Walters and this, this, that, and the other. Where's the photos of the injured hand? I know if I was a fighter who had just been embarrassed like that and I had an injury, I would be taking a picture with my smartphone and tweeting it in the freaking locker room. Hasn't happened. So you know what? I'm calling BS on the injury. Now, maybe there was an injury. Maybe he did indeed fracture a couple knuckles on his left hand. But I'm calling BS that it was severe enough that he had to quit the fight. He was looking for a way out. Let me ask you guys this. Bernardo Asuna, who works for ESPN, bilingual, was working in the corner. Or not working as part of the corner, but I mean working as part of the broadcast in Regan Diaz's corner. Translating for the broadcast, broadcast crew, Joe Tessitore and Timothy Bradley. Not once did he mention anything about Rigo's hand. Rigo didn't say anything to his corner after the second round, where he, when he supposedly injured it, after the third, after the fourth, after the fifth. He didn't say anything until after the sixth round, when he had just lost a point for holding, looked completely desperate, looked out of his league, and lost, you could argue, a 10-8 round. I wouldn't score that round 10-8, but that's how one-sided it was. He wasn't getting physically beat up. He, this wasn't the fight we saw between Roman and Salido. He was just being mentally and emotionally embarrassed and outclassed. And this is a two-time gold medalist. This is a guy who's heralded as one of the best amateur boxers ever. This is a guy, his cultish-like followers, who I call the Regundites, they bow to this guy and pray to him every day as this masterclass boxer and he looked like an amateur against the pro. He straight up looked like an amateur who had no answers. His defense in this fight was holding and pulling Loma into the ropes. That was his defense. Rigano landed 15 punches in the fight, five power punches, five power punches. I believe three of them were left hands. So I don't see a place in the fight where he really hurt that hand. I didn't see one grimace. He didn't shake his hand. No facial expression. I saw a facial expression of, I'm effed. I'm screwed. I got no answers. There's nothing I can do. Ah, my hand's been hurting for a few rounds. Let me just say my hand's hurt and get out of here and save face. I don't know if Rigado was going to get knocked out. It's possible. It's possible he got he would have gotten knocked out late. But he was absolutely going to lose a decision 12 rounds to zero. The first round was close, but Lomachenko still won it on punch numbers alone and activity alone. So this is going to be a whitewash. Either way, just a terrible, terrible moment for Rigondeaux. He can go away and never come back. By the way, his Twitter, a lot's been said that it's Rigondeaux. No, it's not Rigondeaux. From what I hear, guys, from what I'm being told, it is handled by a guy named Willie Suarez, 
who works for a site called Boseo Cubano. And that's who handles Riga Diaz Twitter. So they're the ones who have been making all these memes and all these silly tweets and everything. Well, they suddenly forgot how to tweet. So if this is a Cuban boxing site that is heavily invested in Regando or to where it's supposed to be a news site, but they're handling the Twitter account for a fighter, which I think is unethical. That wouldn't happen here in America. But why not post a picture of the injury? Why not post a doctor's note, an x-ray, something, something. That, I just think it's BS. Now, for Lomachenko, people have been saying the narrative is hilarious. He dragged Rigando up, kicking and screaming. He pulled him up two weight classes because it was Lomachenko calling out Rigando, not the other way around. Funny how narratives change. So now people are saying that. They're also saying he needs to gain 17 pounds and fight Terrence Crawford to prove himself. There's people out there who are saying they're not yet sold on Lomachenko. And then there's people saying, well, he's lost to Salido, who just got knocked out. That's how freaking stupid people are. That's how desperate some people are that have so much hatred in their heart. They have to reach to that level to find something that idiotic to justify, to feed their confirmation bias. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. It's disgusting. What I would like to see from Lomachenko is to clean out 130 pounds. I... Do I want to see him fight Mikey Garcia? Yes. But I want to see Mikey Garcia and Jorge Linares fight each other first. I want to see consolidation in each division. That's the way this thing's supposed to work. Let's see Lomachenko fight Miguel Burchell. Let's see those two fight. Let's see, let's see Linares and Garcia fight. Let's see the winners of those two fights fight after that. That's how it's supposed to work. I'm sick of this crap. And Floyd Mayweather didn't invent it. It started with Roy Jones, maybe. Oscar De La Hoya did some of it. These guys that just bounce around and wait and decide, well, I'm going to be at this weight, then that weight, then this, for the names, right? I don't want to see Lomachenko fall into that. A lot of you out there are saying, well, we already know he beat everyone at 130, so let's see him fight someone at 135. Guys, that's not how it's supposed to work. It's not about he coulda, he shoulda, he woulda. Let's see what he does do. Let's get him in there against Burchell, who I think will give him a good push, who will probably be the best opponent he's fought at 130 pounds. Might be the best win of his career, all things considered. There's still a lot we don't know about Burchell. So let's see that first. Let's pump the brakes on all this moving up to 140, 147. Some of you are saying, I want to see him challenged. What you're really saying, I'm just going to translate what you're really saying through your hatred through your vile, disgusting hatred, prejudice, racism, I don't know. What you're really saying is, I want to see Lomachenko lose. That's what you're really saying. In due time, guys, we will see the fights you all want to see. But let's see divisions consolidated and cleaned out first. Let's see things go uh, with the natural order of the law that's supposed to happen in sports and in boxing. Okay? Quit jumping the gun. Is Lomachenko pound for pound right now? Number one, I don't know. We'll be talking about that. You can make some arguments here a couple different ways. But I think Loma has now entered the realm that Gennady Golovkin was in a couple years ago when people were saying he needed to move up 15 pounds and fight Andre Ward. It just seems to be there are people so scared because their, I, I guess, uh, I don't want to say system, but the way things have been for so long is changing. The names and faces are changing. The origins, the national origins of some of the fighters are changing. And that's making certain people uncomfortable. The power structure in boxing is changing. That makes some people very uncomfortable. And they have to find a boogeyman to beat. Or they have to find somebody to beat the boogeyman before it's too late. So anyway, that's just what I'm seeing here. Um, what else do I have on my notes? One quick note about quitting. Yes, Rigadiel quit. Is it the worst quit we've ever seen? Absolutely not. Do I think it's perfectly fine for some retire, or fighters to call the night and retire in certain fights? Absolutely. I thought what Orlando Salido did against Roman, Mickey Roman, was absolutely justified. Uh, Miguel Cotto. 
just fought Saddam Ali with a badly injured left bicep, right? He felt in that moment that he was going to finish that fight. And he fought five rounds with a damaged bicep on his strong hand. It took him out of, it really ended any chance of him winning that fight because it was his left hook to the body to Saddam Ali that was winning rounds for him and changing the fight. That weapon went away when he injured that bicep. Couldn't do it. Yet he fought on because he had pride that he wanted to fight on. And in that moment, I, thought, I think Cotto really showed what a true fighter who's more concerned with uh, entertaining the fans and fighting with honor than protecting an O or saving face, what a real fighter is about. But I mentioned that, and there are some of you out there who said, yeah, but remember, he took a knee against Antonio Margarito. Again, completely different fight. He was getting beat up. He was physically being beat down. He had the fight beat out of him. His facial skin was shredded. There was chunks of skin hanging off his face, and he took a knee. Completely different, guys. So not all quitting or retiring or, or however, whatever word you want to use, not all of that is created the same. So that's it with the review of what took place last week. Let's preview what's coming up this week. This Wednesday, December 13th in Queensland, Australia, Jeff Horn defending his WBO welterweight title over Gary Corcoran. This is the same title he won off Manny Pacquiao in what was previously the upset of the year. Maybe it still is. I just think Truex to Gale might edge it, but because Pacquiao is such a big name, Horn, now that I think about it, Horn beating Pacquiao, maybe that gets upset of the year. We'll see. Is Terrence Crawford next? I'm assuming that Horn's gonna win this fight. He's a big, big favorite. Never say never, but assuming he wins this fight, Terrence Crawford's supposed to be next in the first quarter of next year, and that fight would probably be in Australia. If Horn does indeed beat Corcoran and then go on to fight Crawford, give the man a lot of props. There's not many people lining up to fight Terrence Crawford. Coolest thing about this, ESPN picked up the fight. So here in America, you could see this live at 3.30 a.m. Wednesday morning on ESPN3. Same day, Wednesday, in London, Katie Taylor defending her WBA lightweight title against Jessica McCaskill. Uh, McCaskill is a Chicago fighter. She's from St. She's a St. Louis native, but moved to Chicago, and she trains there at the Body Shop Boxing Club with Rick Ramos, who I know is a friend of mine. Uh, Tiff and I have gone there and hung out at the gym. Uh, so good luck to Rick and McCaskill going up against Katie Taylor. McCaskill's 33 years old, five foot six. Taylor is 31 and five foot five. I think that this is going to be the toughest fight of Taylor's young professional career and a female fight worth checking out for those of you who are on the fence about female boxing. Thursday, December 14th at Fantasy Springs Casino in Indio, California. It's another Golden Boy Promotions on ESPN card headlined by Diego De La Hoya who is fighting for the fifth time this year. I love this. They are really building this kid up the right way. Going up against Mexican Jose Salgado, who is 35-4-2 with 28 knockouts. Now, Salgado is 1-2-1 in his last four fights, going back to 2014, but he's fought some tough guys. He's fought Carlos Quadras. He's fought Rungvisai. So he's been in there with experienced, elite-level fighters. I think that this is a great, great uh, just great matchmaking from Golden Boy for Diego De La Hoya, who has had an outstanding year. And I really think he's ready for a title shot next year. I think it's a no-brainer that he should fight Ray Vargas next year in his first title shot. Should he come out successful against Salgado, of course. Friday, December 15th. Man, we have boxing like every day this week. On Friday in, I'm probably going to butcher this, Ekaterinburg, Russia. Ekaterinburg, Russia. Russia, <clears throat> Alexander Povetkin going up against Christian Hammer for the mandatory position in the WBO heavyweight uh, title for Joseph Parker, an eventual shot at Joseph Parker. Somehow, somehow, Hammer is rated number one by the WBO. This guy's 22-4 and four with 12 knockouts. He's beat absolutely nobody. He is going to get decapitated by Povetkin 
in Ekaterinburg, Russia. And Povetkin will have a crack at Joseph Parker unless Parker decides he wants to fight Anthony Joshua instead. I think for Parker early next year, it's pick your poison, dude. You want to go to Russia and fight Povetkin or you want to go to London and fight Joshua? I think Joshua is going to make you a hell of a lot more money. So that's where I would go if I was, if I was managing him. Also on Friday in Lancaster, California, it's another PBC on Fox Sports 1 car. we got a few fights here. Jesse Vargas making his ring return, going up against Aaron Herrera. Ten rounds, welterweights. Vargas coming off that loss to Manny Pacquiao last November. Herrera is a Mexican journeyman. He's been in with a lot of names. He was KO'd by Brandon Rios back in June. I think he had a, a comeback fight since then against a, you know, a journeyman level fighter. So this is good matchmaking for Vargas. Expect him to win a decision here. John Molina fighting Ivan Redcatch. 10 rounds, lightweights. Molina has lost six of his last 11 going back to 2012, but he has fought some tough names. A lot of experience in those fights. Redcatch is a Ukrainian who now lives in Los Angeles. He is 2-3-1 in his last six fights after starting his career 18-0. So I think this will be an interesting matchup. I lean towards Redcatch. I lean towards him just because of youth. He's just fresher. Molina's got a lot of mileage on the odometer. And then also Diego Gabriel Chavez versus Jamal James, 10 rounds welterweights. Uh, Chavez is an Argentinian fighter, rugged, dirty, nasty kind of fighter. Loses when he steps up. He lost to Keith Thurman, lost to Brandon Rios. I think he had a draw with Timothy Bradley. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that fight was a draw, but it should have been a clear win for Bradley. Strange, strange uh, decision in that fight. So when he steps up in class, he loses. Going up against Jamal James, who is a fighter from Minneapolis, who's 21-1 with nine knockouts. I've got to lean toward Chavez in this fight just because of experience. Uh, I don't see much out of James, but maybe we'll see James prove that he's a legitimate prospect to keep an eye on. So that's that card. Of course, the big card, Saturday, December 16th in Laval, Quebec, Canada on HBO. Billy Joe Saunders going up against David Lemieux, defending his WBO middleweight title. We're going to find out just how real Billy Joe Saunders is for once, once and for all. We've seen him in there against, um, what, Eubank Jr. a couple years back, and he barely won that fight. We've seen him in there against a very aged Andy Lee. We've seen him in there look pretty good against William Monroe Jr. But he's going in there against a guy in David Lemieux who can really freaking punch, who scored the knockout of the year. It's hard to believe that it was just this year. It feels like it was a year or two ago already, like, you know, several years ago. Just this year has been so loaded. When David Lemieux decapitated Curtis Stevens, right? This guy can crack. We're going to find out just how real Saunders is and can he take punches from a guy like Lemieux. It's also the, the, the outcome of this fight is going to weigh heavily or going to affect heavily the Canelo-Golovkin rematch negotiations. If David Lemieux wins this fight, I think you're going to see Canelo and Lemieux fight in May. And I think the rematch with Golovkin is going to get pushed back. That's just what I see. Now, my first inclination is to pick Lemieux by huge destructive knockout. But Lemieux just relies on power. He gets power happy. And Saunders does have boxing ability. And from everything I've heard from people around his camp, he's taking this fight seriously. He knows what he's up against. He knows that this is by far the best opponent he's ever fought. And he's training like it. So I think we're probably going to see Saunders outboxing Lemieux at least early on. I wouldn't be surprised if he's up four or five rounds halfway through the fight. The question for me is what happens when Lemieux finally lands? Because I think Lemieux will finally land some shots. And I know it's Lemieux, and I'm saying the name wrong, guys. Forgive me. And, you know, I talked about French names earlier in this episode. I can see the comments in my mind now. But uh, for Lemieux... 
Can he land that big shot? If he does land it, can he follow it up? I think that as far as rounds are concerned, Saunders is going to win the rounds in this fight. Lemieux is going to have to get a stoppage. So I could see a situation where it's eight rounds to two, Saunders is up, and then the Canadian lands a big shot and scores a late stoppage. Those, that's one scenario. The other scenario is that Saunders absolutely stinks the joint out. He holds and mauls and grapples with Lemieux and stinks the joint out, suffocates his power, and wins a unanimous decision fairly wide on the cards. We could see that happen. I hope that's not what happens. I hope it's scenario A and the Canadian gets the big stoppage, even though the downside is we're going to get a delay in Golovkin-Canelo 2. Also on this card, Antoine Douglas versus Gary O'Sullivan. Ten rounds, middle, uh, middleweights. Douglas had that bad TKO loss to Adventil Kurt Seize last March. He's fought limited opposition since. Sullivan is an Irish fighter, loses every time he steps up. He lost to Saunders and lost to Chris Eubank Jr. He should lose this fight as well. Also on this uh, card, the Hebrew Hammer, Cletus Selden. He just fought a month ago. He's back in action against, I'm going to butcher this name, Yves Ulesi Jr. 10 rounds, 140 pounders. Ulesi is a Canadian fighter coming off a split decision loss to Steve Claggett in October. I like Selden to get him out of there after some competitive rounds early on. That's it, guys. Um, man, whew, that was a mouthful, huh? A lot going on for December, man. It usually ain't like this. So let me know what you guys think. Like, comment, share, subscribe. Those of you who said Rigodeau is going to dominate and win and score a stoppage, time to eat your crow. Get in that comment section below. Guys, spread the word about the show. Check out Patreon if you can. I'll see you at the fights.